Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper on Sunday, December 8th, 2019. Belated happy birthday to my brother, Bryce. Happy birthday, Bryce. Yeah. Uh, he was having his birthday uh, December 5th. Okay, good. Congratulations. So here we are. Here In the are. thick of it. It feels like it's practically Christmas, but, but Well, it's but been it's very not. cold, and it's we not. had some snow yeah, since last so. we spoke. Somebody jumping this season. I don't know. But we're totally into it, so... Uh, we're, we're into it? We're, along with, we're going along with the crowd. Uh, and just to show that, uh, we went last night to see a production of A Christmas Carol at Music Mountain Theater. Yes, it was at the invitation of our buddies Mark and Dixon. That's right. They talked us into it. We we can't we can't refuse such an invitation. And uh, we had a great time. We did. It was uh, a revelation. Yes, it's a local theater. Yeah, a community theater in Lambertville. Again, Music Mountain Theater. Right. And not for profit. Right. Well, not-for-profit, that doesn't, you know, a lot of theaters are not-for-profit, but this really is a community theater. Even the ones means, who are trying to be for-profit. Right, yeah, but, well, whatever. But they, they, it's hard to tell them apart. But what makes this different is that this is local people performing. There right. are people who have real jobs. I mean, you saw in the little notes in, in the program about, you say, well, you may recognize me as the barista at blankety-blank. Um, that's what they are, and a lot of young people, too. And... Uh, it was, first of all, the production. It was uh, very good. It was really good. Right. Yeah. I mean, um, that's number one. Yes. That means uh, a lot because uh, we wouldn't be talking about this if we went to some uh, theater that was regional. It wasn't worth going to. But well, it was. there's a difference between regional theater and community theater. All right. You're right. Okay. Let's call it community Carter theater. theater is, is regional. regional theater. This is community theater. But I enjoyed this as much as many things I've seen at McCarter and many things I've seen in New York. Have you ever been to community theater before? I have a million years ago when I was uh, probably under 10 years old. I saw a production of The Pajama Game. I can't tell you uh, what the uh, theater was exactly, but I was flabbergasted. I was overwhelmed by it. Was this in Long Island? Yeah, well, I mean, we went to a, uh, we had a local group. Yeah, I lived in Kensington, Maryland, and we had the Kengar Players, which was a combination of a couple different towns. Right, and uh, they performed in an old armory. Yeah. in in town, and uh, my parents were subscribers. And how was it? And uh, I always thought it was great. They, you know, they did all the usual stuff like uh, Agatha Christie, etc. And uh, if they didn't, if my parents didn't feel like going, or they thought it was a, a really good production that uh, we should see, uh, I would end up going. Look, this is amazing. Let me tell you why it's amazing. First of all, um, this was a musical. We had no idea what we were going to see. This turns out to be a musical version of um, A Christmas Carol. Uh, there have been a few different musical versions. The one we're most familiar with is Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol, yes. which was done in 1962. And it was written by Jules Stein, who is serious business. I mean, uh, Jules Stein wrote uh, Gypsy, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Funny Girl. Well, he and was it real... is the best. It's super. It, uh, it, it is, is a great, super. But it's not performed much because it was performed uh, by cartoon characters. So people right. don't cotton to it too terribly much. I remember much. when uh, videotapes first came out. Yeah. Very early on. Yeah. I was still in college. And the first thing you videotaped? And the first, I went home for Christmas. Yeah. And I found a local store 
that rented oh, really? videotape machines and the videotapes. And I rented both, trucked them to my parents' house, and uh, we got to see Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. Because sometimes it was replayed over the years, right. uh, but you couldn't always guarantee that. And my whole family loved it. Uh, so hey, Look, that's a classic. So we're, a classic. we're watching this as a musical last night, and I'm saying, what is this? Um, and it turns out it is the version of Christmas Carol that was performed beginning in 1994 – uh, is it? Yeah, I think in 1994, at Madison Square Garden, mm-hmm. they had their what was called the Paramount Theater or the Felt Forum. It's not. It's not the big 15,000 right. uh, foot arena, right. 15,000 uh, seat arena. It's something less. It's an auditorium. Yeah. yeah. And uh, but they had a Christmas show, and this is what it was. And they performed this for about ten years. And this too is uh, serious business. I mean, it's done by real pros. It's written. By uh, Alan Menken does the music and Lynn Ahrens does the words. Now Alan Menken, uh, I know you know, uh, did, uh, wrote all the uh, Disney stuff, right? So Alan Menken um, did. Uh, let's see, uh, Alan Menken did Little Mermaid, wrote the music for Little Mermaid, for Beauty and the Beast, for Aladdin, for Pocahontas, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. Before that, uh, he was on Broadway. He wrote Little Shop of Horror. As a matter of fact, one of the the story of Alan Menken is he was sort of struggling, doing mediocre, little shop of horrors, being a good example on Broadway. And someone said, why knock yourself out? Go out to the West Coast, make some money. And that's what happened to him. But he's obviously a very talented guy. And the words, uh, you know, the, the words of uh, the Disney stuff was by Howard Ashman. So it was a Menken and Ashman. But this uh, was with Lynn Ahrens. Lynn Ahrens did the words. Now, Lynn Ahrens uh, has her own great accomplishments. Lynn Ahrens... Uh, mostly known for uh, ragtime. Now, she wrote after that. Interestingly, Menken was already well-known when he wrote this in 94. Ragtime was written later in 98, so she became big later on, and she was writing with Stephen Flaherty. Lynn Ahrens is, you may remember, she was sitting right next to us at Studio 54 when we were there when they did that. Oh, right. Yes, that was Lynn Ahrens. Um, But these are pros, and the songs are real songs. And... um, so it's a very nice production. I'm not saying it's mining the depths of A Christmas Carol from a literary point of view, but it's hard <laughs> to really complain about it. Uh, it's not totally superficial. And um, interestingly, when you think, at least when I think, and here I'll use the phrase regional theater, when I think regional theater, uh, nonprofit theater, as you put it a moment ago, I say, well, you know, they're worried about expenses. The production's going to be spare. They're going to have to be clever. Uh, apparently, when it comes to community theater, not so much because everybody wants to be in the act. So you were overwhelmed with the cast members here. What right. 25 were cast, cast members? They were all over the place. Plus, it was done, the production itself was done in kind of, uh, I would say, old time British music hall um, ambiance. Right. So the costumes were quite over the top. Right. The wigs were over the top. The, you know, the dancing was over the top. Right. Uh, so, uh, and I think that was all on purpose. But there were right. costumes and wigs, which kind of amazed me too. Yeah, and there were yeah. real sets, and yeah. it was kind of clever. But they were done. also verged on wacky in, yeah. in a lot of ways, well. which made it a lot of fun. That it moved along oh, tremendously. Yeah. You didn't have a moment to get bored or say, "Wait a minute, I know what's happening now." Um, and uh, so it was a lot of fun. It doesn't have the poignance of uh, you know the real story. No, but it's amusing. Uh, but right. it, it was uh, the wackiest scene. Fun. Of course, was the uh, rocket scene. In the middle of it, they have uh, 
uh, six or seven dancers dressed up as rockettes that do no, sort no, of no. a number. No, no, no. The wackiest scene was uh, the Night of the Living Dead scene where well, there are uh, a bunch of zombies kind of dancing well, around But you'll be interesting to know that that's exactly the way it was done in Madison Square Garden. Uh-huh. That scene now, I can't, I don't know if the rockettes scene was that way. With and, hoverboards? Uh, I don't can't say about hoverboards. But in any event, you can find it on film because they, the Hallmark people bought the rights to this in 2004 when the run ended and filmed it. So, uh, and, and, and it was one of those celebrity things in Madison Square Garden, like who was going to play Scrooge, right? So one year it was Tony Randall, another was Roddy McDowell, F. Murray Abraham, Frank Langella. Each year another name would play Scrooge. And it was the kind of, you know, holiday thing. So it wasn't a real Broadway show, but it was uh, pretty good. Yeah. And uh, they did a great job with it. It was a tremendous amount of fun. Uh, it wasn't like the audience was just filled with kids. It wasn't a child show. Uh, and, uh, I mean, you could bring children, but that, it, it right. certainly was pitched to adults. Uh, the theater was very nice. Uh, we were estimating right. it seats about 250 people. And, uh, they do Look, real. Let's hear it for a community theater. Now, yeah. Well, they do a lot so of real shows. At, they do a lot of real shows. In fact, next year, uh, Music Mountain Theater is doing Into the Woods, Matilda, Legally Blonde, um, Anything Goes. Uh, American Idiot. Yeah. Uh, you know, drowsy it's, it's crazy. I mean, I would say fun things. How? And yeah. this is the thing. Yeah. You can go to these. The top ticket price is $25. Right. Okay. A senior rate uh, is uh, about $22. Oh, you, you can, can get, get that in a few years. Yeah. yeah. And you can you can get uh, like a 10-show pass huh. for $230. Okay. Uh, I mean, the the point is, it's a lot of fun to be had but how, for not that much but money. But how can they do it? I mean, I'm looking at these shows. These are not the simplest shows in the world to do. And plus, you have to pay something and get the rights. I guess maybe as a community theater, you pay less. But to put on these shows, I can tell you, I know a little bit about the economics of things. It's unthinkable right. that you can do 10 real shows in a year. So hats off to them. Well, we'll see. I mean, uh, anyway, it was, as I said, a revelation. A revelation. Yeah, we had a great look, time. Hey, there are probably a, look, we learned this. Maybe we knew this anyway. There are a lot and of, also, we went with Mark, who you know is part of the music community in right. the He's area. He's a pro. So he could point out people to us <laughs> and tell us <laughs> little backstories, yes, right. uh, etc. So uh, that Look, was fun. There are there are a lot of talented people out there. They're not all doing this for a living. Really, there are a lot of talented people. I uh, forget that every once in a while, but apparently that is the case. I was reminded yesterday, and this is a great resource. I'll be looking into it. Um, so that was great. That was last night, but uh, you know, then uh, that wasn't everything we did this week on Thursday. We were at Roundabout for the Rose Tattoo. Well, we were at the American Airlines Theater. No, Roundabout. We were at a Roundabout production. Yes, sure. Um, And uh, so, Tennessee Williams. Uh, Well, first of all, uh, let me frame it this way, but I know I'm going to end up agreeing with you. In the write-up in the playbill... Where they're always going to be very positive. Really? Yes. In the playbill? They say it's a production. Uh, it's one of the uh, great heroines in one of the great plays by one of the greatest playwrights in the history of American theater. And it is none of those things. <laughs> <laughs> none no, of those. Now, it's starring Marissa Tomei. She's very good. We do love her. Yes. I love her. Yeah. I, I don't know if you love her. I love her. Um, do you remember she did a she did a very good performance no doubt about that did you remember John John Gambling talking about Marissa Tomei no John Gambling was friends with Marissa Tomei's uh, mother and apparently he was at some 
some some production, some non-profit production before she was famous. Before um, is that Olympia Dukakis? I don't think it's the mother. I don't think so. But before that's a, that's a different story, I guess. Yeah, maybe. But this is before uh, my cousin Vinny. Before she was famous, okay. and he was at something where she was literally an usher. Marisa Tomei was dressed up as an usher. Uh, and, you know, was but making believe she was an usher from 1930s. And he was saying, oh, my friend so-and-so daughter, Marissa Tomei, was so cute and so whatever, and she's going to be an actress. Yeah, yeah. Worked out for her. And she did become an actress. She's quite a big star. And she's very good in this. The story, uh, though, is, well, is it dated or was it never that interesting? What do you think? I don't know. You tell me. Well, the story is, is it's a woman who's living in, I guess, South Carolina. Did I get that right? No, Florida. Florida, Okay. Well, I should have known by the flamingo. Very nice set. And, um, but she's Italian and Sicilian, as she reminds us every few minutes. Uh, and, uh, she's very much in love with her husband. Um, and her husband meets an untimely end. Uh, and she is overwhelmed with grief so much so she can't function and she can't really deal intelligently with her teenage daughter and it's kind of undermining her life. And, uh, how the question is, how she's dealing with this, how she, uh, deals with uh, things that she learns after the fact about her husband and make them uh, less than sterling, uh, and how she deals in particular with meeting another man who arrives in the form of a truck driver, uh, as her husband was, who stops by by accident. Basically, it's the first guy who comes to the house. Well, the second guy. You know, there, there's a, the door-to-door salesman comes and then gets chased away yeah. by this truck driver. Right. Uh, you know... Who, uh, who uh, overwhelms her. Overwhelms her. She's very sensuous, and uh, he appeals to her on that level. And that seems to solve a lot of problems for her, psychologically. Yeah. So uh, nothing wrong with the story, uh, except that it goes on and on and on and on and on and on. And uh, Marissa Tomei imbues a lot more life in it than you would think possible. Um, it is what they intended to be. They did a uh, production of this in Williamstown in, uh, 19, in 2016. So it's not like they just threw the pieces together and let's see what happens. Uh, it's directed by Trip uh, Coleman, who uh, directed Choir Boy. So it's not like you have a director who doesn't know what he's doing. Right. It is what they want it to be. Yeah. Uh, which, in my mind, is not too very much. And I, uh, I, I don't remember reading a lot of reviews. I read the Times Review, which was not positive, uh, except for Marissa Tomei. Well, there was a lot of music in this. Was there music in the original? Uh, that I don't know. Can't tell you that. But uh, let me tell you this about the original that I found interesting. There, it was done on Broadway with Maureen Stapleton, which seems an odd choice in many ways. It's just hard a, to imagine. A million years ago. It was written in 1951. Well, here's how that happened. Uh, Tennessee Williams loved Anna Magnani. And Anna Magnani, a great Italian actress, mostly film, and uh, wrote it for her, asked her to do it on Broadway. And she said, I can't do it. My English is not good enough. Wouldn't do it. And then he fell back into Maureen Stapleton, who was uh, fine, did it with Eli Wallach. Uh, 1955, they made a movie, and by that point, he had persuaded Anna Magnani to play the part for the purpose of the movie. Uh, she did, uh, and she won Best Actress uh, from the Academy Awards, the first foreign-born actress to win Best Actress. So it was quite wow. a thing. Uh, she was a great actress. But I, I still, I can't get over Maureen Stapleton and no. Eli Wallach well, as an irresistible... Well. You know, she's as irresistible. Muscular, uh, young uh, truck driver. Yeah, she's, you know? she's as, ir- he's as irresistible as she is sensuous. How about that? Can we can we settle on that? No, I don't know. I'd have to. I, I guess I ought to see You're, see it to believe it. There's nothing to see. The movie know, has uh, Anna Magnani, who is a uh, force of nature. Uh, she must have been quite good. But I'm sure she wasn't uh, born looking like 
an older battle axe. Who are we talking about now? Marine Stapleton. I would forget Marine Stapleton. The only you can, person it's you can see is imagine. Anna Mignani is the only person All you right. can see. So anyway, so, um, you know, that by now is actually closed. Yeah. So uh, it doesn't matter what our recommendation yes, is Yes, forget anyway. it. We're not hurting anybody. Uh, so you had an article about the history of Christmas lights. Yes. Well, you know, Christmas lights are near and dear to us. Because uh, our buddy Dixon is a Christmas light enthusiast par excellence. And so... uh, Can I I give away his secret? No. Okay. No. He has his secrets. He has professional secrets. All right, fine. Um, Anyway, in the Wall Street Journal, under Historically Speaking, Amanda Foreman gives us the whole story. So you may realize that uh, Thomas Edison invented... The electric light bulb. The first functional, fully functional one was 1879. The following year, he strung up some lights outside his Menlo Park factory, uh, partly in good cheer, you know, to spread good cheer at Christmas time, but partly to advertise the lights, right? Right. Uh, Meanwhile, his partner, uh, Edward H. uh, Johnson, Put up a little Christmas tree, I think, was it in the window, on a revolving turntable mm-hmm. in his window in Manhattan. Okay. Okay. And so it delighted people so much, it got bigger and bigger every year. This helped galvanize the whole sport of competitive Christmas lighting. Um, one of the first uh, big competitors to Edward Johnson was President Grover Cleveland who in 1894 erected an enormous multi-light Christmas tree in the White House. So at this point, light bulbs were way too expensive for just anybody to use. So this took a while. But uh, fortunately, um, other people were uh, inspired to create community tree lighting. First one in Manhattan was on December 24th, 1912 in Madison Square Park. But of course, we know, and Armand knows, that the very first community tree lighting ceremony was in Percocy, really? Pennsylvania, oh, God. in 1909. Yes, I'm sure he okay. remembers that. Uh, yeah, it's right. in the Guinness Book of World Records or wow. something. Wow, yeah. So um, it's not, uh, commercial Christmas lights don't really become available. Uh, wait a minute, Cr- outdoor Christmas tree lights don't become commercially available until 1927. So it takes a while. But from then on, they're off to the races. Okay. All right. Um, yes, we'll have to have uh, Dixon on to talk about his approach to Christmas lights. He's the expert. Isn't that sort of a visual? Yes, I guess it is. All right, so here's something that comes with Christmas that uh, isn't... Uh, Necessarily a positive, but uh, it's the way business works. You know, all these packages that are delivered for Christmas uh, by FedEx, uh, Amazon type stuff, that sort of thing. Turns out a lot of them are stolen. Yes, we know that. Well, uh, they, it, almost every night on the news, if you watch TV news, let me give you some they numbers. have the latest, you okay, know, well, robbery. Let me tell you, let me give you some numbers yeah. before you tell me what you know. Okay. 90,000 packages a day go missing. Now, you're going to say, in the United States, it's a big place, you know, 90,000 is not a big deal, right? That's what you're thinking, right? No, I think that sounds like a lot. Except for one thing. That's just New York City. 
90,000 in day. New York City. Well, because no one has a place to put their packages. In the nation, 1.7 million packages a day Are go stolen. missing. Yeah. Okay. That's a lot of packages. I, I get it. And uh, So what's the solution? Well, uh, mastermind. well, first of all, let me give you a little context. So there's 15% of all deliveries, they estimate, uh, in urban areas go missing. And so what the solution is, people have different solutions like video doorbells or the like. Um, and working out with their doorman. But the fact of the matter is not everyone has an ideal scenario. So you have someone starting a business here, which is called Pickups Technologies. Um, and, and it's not the only business around, but it's uh, it's sort of an Uber type thing. It sort of matches requests for people to accept the packages, the people who are offering to accept packages at various locales and matching them up. This is how you do it. This yes. is how you do it. All you right. have an older person in your building. Yes. They've got nothing to do. do they have examples they of that. They receive yes. the packages. All right? There's such I mean, a person. Zika Noir used to do that, I think, in the, their... Yeah. Uh, they do have an example, conference. a woman named Miriam Cruz in East Harlem in her building, who's known as Ma, accepts packages for everybody, refuses to take payment. But not everybody has... Ma Miriam Cruz in their building, All right. and they're kind of left to their own devices. I smell retirement job. Uh, well, yes. Now uh, we just got to move to an apartment building. And the money it needs a package girl. But you want to know and what I the, can be that package girl. How, how you you want to know what the money is? The money is five dollars a no, package. No, no, no. Or ten dollars for a monthly service. Is that the wrong pricing for you? That's five dollars a package is ridiculous. Too high. Yes. Huh? I know, it's a big you know, city, Who honey. would pay that? We go crazy just to get uh, free shipping. All I know is Christmas creates another new business, another new opportunity. Well, Christmas has, for a very long time, been, as they say in the Christmas Carol, all about retail. Yeah. <laughs> Do they? Okay. <laughs> well, I have a no bit. Um, Robert Massey, Robert K. Massey, I think it even is Robert K. Massey III or something, uh, author, uh, died at age 90. He was the author of Nicholas and Alexandra, right. which was this huge book about uh, what happened to the Tsar and his family uh, and uh, that was very super popular. Uh, when was that? In the 1970s? Well, he was, he was the, ultimately became the preeminent American scholar with respect to the Tsar's regime and, and all the events that took place at that time. Is that really true? Yes. Or is it just the preeminent author? No, he wrote more than one book about it. All right. Um, Anyway, the way, what's interesting about it, which I already knew, but you uh, reminded me, is that the way he and his wife got interested in uh, Russian history is that he was researching uh, hemophilia because he had a son born uh, with hemophilia and, uh, you know, in aspiring to figure it out how they would help him handle it. Um, he does all this research, and he finds out that, uh, who was it? Alexei. Alexei yes. son of Nicholas and Alexandra, had hemophilia, and they sought the help of Grigory Rasputin, the notorious faith-healing monk right. who gained influence over the imperial court. Who they and, attribute, in part, the responsibility for the Russian Revolution itself, because people revolted against Rasputin as much as anything else. They didn't like Rasputin. Rasputin calling the shots. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, so anyway, so that's, that's kind of interesting. Um, and, uh, I mean, uh, Brushes with Greatness actually... Um, 
Bob Massey, the son with yeah. hemophilia, uh, was two years behind me at Princeton. Mm-hmm. And yeah, uh, no, I you would he, see him going around. He, he like has been a wheelchair or something. Uh, right? No, no, a, a golf cart, actually. Golf cart, right. You know, it wasn't unusual for athletes, uh, injured athletes, to have golf carts mm-hmm. uh, tooling around campus. And uh, he had one, too, because uh, if he gets himself. injured, right. it's, couldn't a, stop it's a the bleeding. thing. Right. Um, and he could be easily injured. So, um, so that's interesting. And I was just uh, actually reading a little bit about him. And he actually, by now, has had a liver transplant, mm-hmm. which cured his hemophilia. Which is kind of amazing. So that's kind of amazing and yeah. exciting. Uh, but uh, anyway, so that was uh, Robert Massey yeah. passed away. But that's interesting. That's how he became the preeminent Russian scholar, doing that kind of research for his son. Weird. Um, Before the internet, even. Yeah. Well, that's why you need a guy like that. Uh, all right. So here's something about pain that, that I think you correctly said. This is a hard article to describe. Uh, but it, it is interesting to me, and the notion, it's called the pain you feel is real, and it's all in your head. That's why it's treatable. And what they mean by that is this, that people sometimes say, one person might say, I'm in terrible pain, and maybe a doctor or someone else says, I don't know, I think it's in your head. And the answer to that is, yeah, that's where it always is. It's always in your head. Uh, all pain is in your head. And what what is meant by that is... Um, there is a general uh, understanding with conventional wisdom that's a misunderstanding. Sometimes in the article it's called officially the naive point of view, that whenever you hurt yourself, let's say you hurt your elbow, that the body sends uh, pain signals, that there are pain receptors and they send pain, pain signals to the brain or whatever, so that you feel the pain in your elbow. And the answer is there are no pain receptors in your elbow. There are no pain signals. What the what the what is sent to the brain is a collection of information about everything that's going on in the body, and the brain interprets that uh, in some cases to be that something's wrong and there should be pain, uh, and that's an interpretation on the well, part so of the, the brain. The pain is just a signal that something is wrong. Well, the things brain, are going on. It's more than that. It's not. It's not that the pain. The pain is not a signal of anything. The pain is an interpretation on the part of the brain that something is wrong. In other words, as they say in the article, uh, pain is an opinion. Before the brain forms an opinion that something's going on down there that merits the feeling of pain. So that's what's yeah. going on. So it's all in your head. Yeah. And the result is that uh, there is um, some opportunity, at least, for treatment psychologically of situations that elicit pain. But there are limitations on the opportunities in that connection. In other words, uh, you cannot eliminate pain just by telling somebody it's all in your head, just don't think about it. Because in the same way, you can't tell someone to relax. I know you're nervous, relax, and the person relaxes. That's not the way people behave. But what you can do is you can create circumstances surrounding such that the brain is more relaxed, whether it's listening to music, whether it's putting you in a safer environment, whether it's putting showing you, you a picture of a loved one, showing you a picture, all kinds of things yes. that lower the anxiety I mean, level we, of the we've brain, known that. and actually lowers the the pain yeah. level. Yeah, we've we, known that. What did we know? I didn't know that. Well, I, when I when I was in labor with Zeke, um, one of the things I did was look at a picture of uh, Granger and Sadie. You no, know, you're pulling the, the labor and, cord out on me. Whenever. <laughs> no, but also there's been a lot of talk about. I didn't how, even know that. You there's, there's been a lot of talk about how. Um, placebo effect is real. The placebo effect, in many cases, solves a lot of well, problems. What they're saying is not even placebo effect. It's really yeah. directly what's going on. Yeah. But so you're telling me that you were in labor, you had a picture of... I had uh, a picture with me. 
of Granger and Sadie. Really? And when the pain was the worst, I, I would look at that. No kidding. And uh, I would immediately feel, I didn't know that. feel a lot better. And whose who's advice was that? On whose advice I did you have? I have no idea. I have no idea. But you didn't have a picture of your husband with it. No, that, <laughs> that might not have the same effect. <laughs> wow. Uh, all right. Well, that's consistent with what this theory is here. So it's uh, pain. I like the phrase, it, it, pain is an opinion. I love yeah. that. Well, it, but it doesn't mean that nothing's wrong. No, right? not at all. is making not at all. things up. No. Um, although it sometimes is nothing's wrong. Right. Tell that one story. Well, the story that they have here is that uh, someone's walking along steps on a nail. The nail goes through. The sole and, and, the, nail. and the top of the shoe, so you can see it. And the, the person is freaking out and screaming. And they give them fentanyl and all kinds of things because they're feeling terrible pain. Yeah. And they take the shoe off, and they realize the the nail went between the toes and didn't touch the body. But because the person experiencing it was reacting so strongly to the visual, they felt the pain as if he was the nail went right to the middle of the foot. So that's kind of amazing. It's well, all the, the, it's all in your head, dear. Well, the brain is a powerful, powerful. Well, listen, brain. I'm glad I found that article. It's not one of the reasons to hear that story about uh, why you sailed through the labor for uh, Z. Sailed through. <laughs> that's the way I remember it. Uh, yeah. um, well, uh, in the um, Wall Street Journal, actually, there were a couple of articles uh, about movies. Uh, that are of interest. One uh, was under that uh, the heading masterpiece, and it's uh, celebrating the movie Z, or Z, of 1969 by Costa Gravis, and that just resonated with me. Not that I like the movie, okay, <laughs> but I did see the movie. Yes, uh, approximately 50 years ago, um, as part of a French class field trip. And uh, we went from suburban Maryland uh, to downtown Washington. I'm going to say it was in uh, Georgetown right. uh, somewhere. We went out to a charming little bistro. As one does. And I had yes. my first little French luncheon. Uh -huh. uh, I think it was chicken breast with Dijon mustard or something. Right. And, um, and then we went to see this movie. And the movie is a powerful movie about... Uh, the um, I guess the murder of a pacifist campaigner, right? Uh, Lambracus um, in Greece, right? Right, played so, by uh, Yves Montand. And, and what? What's, well, the Yves Montand, yeah. What's tricky about it is it's it, it's done in front. Costas Gravis is the director, and it's done in such a way that you're kind of watching it. They don't spell it out entirely clearly to you. So there is doubt as to what exactly went on. Everyone has their own inter interpretation of what went on because they... You have a reporter. He plays a reporter investigating this? Uh, I, first of all, I didn't see the movie. Okay. Okay. But uh, So I can't give you details. But the notion is that in the same way that people bring their own political agenda to interpreting any set of events, you have the same thing going on here. You as the viewer don't get a perfect look, but you have a sense of it, and then you're seeing everything that happens around it. Right. So it was a powerful movie. Um, you know, it, it was shut down various places but every greek wanted to see it uh, really? and uh, anyway i saw it yeah. i don't remember a thing about it obviously i don't know what this is telling it, us it about you it didn't resonate at all i mean what kind of movie is this to take it's very high-minded to think 
a bunch of 15 or 16 year old girls yeah, it's, it's a, it's are going to get something it's out a fairly of sophisticated i mean my reaction i think movie. was wait a minute i'm studying french so i can see this so i can understand this <laughs> yes, they you know i was i had much more romantic ideas about where french was going to get me in life yeah uh, yeah and you were right but uh there you go but i will never forget uh, odd name too, Zed. What kind of name is that yes. for a movie? We were saying before they later remade it uh, for the U.S. audience because even this was a challenge uh, for even adults. So they remade it with Jack Lemmon and Sissy Spacek, um, make it a little easier. So and no then, one's blaming uh, you. Then there was another article by uh, Jason Gay, who is sort of a uh, humorist, yes. right? Yes, I think that's sort of uh, high praise, but yes. It's, and you'll last the article. I don't think uh, you need the article. I don't article. even think I need it. But you the don't. point is, it's an apology to Martin Scorsese uh, saying that, uh, sorry, Martin, I watched The Irishman this weekend on my phone. Right. And I loved it. Well, that's not the apology. I he, loved it. But he, he, that, he, right. he's, he's, he said he got a lot out of it, notwithstanding what Scorsese right. feared, that he couldn't understand it. And, so, and we're chatting uh, last night with Dixon. Dixon said, I watched it on my phone. Right. And it was great. Dixon and had, yeah. one of the things that Jason Gay says, it's a great little snack kind of thing. He could run away from you know the festivities of Thanksgiving weekend and just get a little bite right. uh, of this movie that he was really into. Right, so, which is exactly the opposite way way that uh, Scorsese conceives of the movie. He conceives of something that you lock yourself in, you bring all your powers of concentration, and you're and lost you're in the film. Lost in And this. he's saying, there yeah. I am, it's 12 minutes here in the kitchen, and 18 minutes in the bedroom, I got my pajamas on before I go to sleep, 10 minutes, which is the same way Dixon described it. Right. But he says, in all fairness, he's a guy with four young kids. You know, right. If he goes to the movies, it's animated. You know, right. he, uh, he is not getting time off uh, to go to three hours uh, of something uh, adult and engaging in that sense. That's so, right. um, you know, that's right. That's right. I think it's a, a call to embrace well, but it uh, is. new technology. Yeah, I think Scorsese should be heartened by that. Uh, not that he's reading that, but uh, I think there's something to that. And, and again, Dixon loved it too. Yeah. I, on the phone. On the phone. All right. So just to go back to Christmas Carol, I've always loved Christmas Carol, the book. Um, and uh, we enjoyed the musical uh, version last night. And uh, I love Magoo and all that stuff. But well, you really love it. You listen to it annually. Well, I've, I've listened to it annually, but it's the Patrick Stewart reading of it. Yes. Okay. So it's not really so much a show. It's just a reading, except he has it memorized. And I wouldn't say so much he plays the parts, but he just used a lot of expression in in recounting it. Yeah. And and when there's dialogue, he certainly uses different voices and the like. And it's fantastic. And if you get your hands on that, you know, a recording of uh, Patrick Stewart, and he did it on Broadway. It's, mm -hmm. it, it is fantastic. But the reason it's fantastic is it's the book. I mean, I, the truth is Patrick Stewart edited the book a little bit, made it just a little bit shorter, but the book's not that long it's called a novella generally speaking and it's brilliantly written and it was what cued me into something that i didn't really know and i should have known is that that dickens was a brilliant brilliant author yeah. uh quite apart from every anything else that's associated with dickens um and you can get that from a lot of his books but he's just he's writing it as we were discussing last night in a serial form he's writing for a newspaper yeah he writes five pages a week and he's just letting it go and boom, boom, boom. It's like a, you know, it's like an early TV show or something. Right. You, you see an episode and then can't wait to right. see the next episode. Right. In this case, you're reading. But he's such a brilliant writer that, you know, whatever versions there are, more power to them. 
but the book as a singular appeal. Let me just read a couple paragraphs. They're not going to be too amazing. It's very hard to pull anything out. But this is just, this is the way he's writing offhanded on the back of an envelope for a serial once a week. Here it goes. Right. Here's, 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 Take a breath. Yes. And put uh, yourself in the shoes of Patrick Stewart. I can't do that. Oh, well, let's I'll, give, I'll it do, a, give it a He's shot. got some kind of Scottish accent. Like, what's, what's, you don't Welsh. have to do the accent. Uh, Just inform it right. with his... Here's his description. Here's, here's Dickens' description of Scrooge. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand-at-the-grindstone Scrooge. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire, secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. A frosty rhyme was on his head and on his eyebrows and his wiry chin. He carried his own low temperature always about with him. He iced his office in the dog days and didn't thaw it one degree at Christmas. External heat and cold had little influence on Scrooge. No warmth could warm, no wintry weather chill him. No wind that blew was bitterer than he. No falling snow was more intent upon its purpose. No pelting rain less open to entreaty. Foul weather didn't know where to have him. Nobody ever stopped him in the street to say with gladsome looks, My dear Scrooge, how are you? When will you come to see me? But what did Scrooge care? It was the very thing he liked, to edge his way along the crowded paths of life, warning all human sympathy to keep its distance. Well, there you go. That gives you a taste of a Christmas carol. Thank you for that. Okay. And uh, that's all we have today. Until next week. This is Tamson Granger. And Dan Apuhop. With Tamson and Dan read the paper. See you then.